This thing that we built together called a retreat is now dissolving a little. It's showing the signs of its dissolution. (laughs) Outwardly and inwardly, I'm sure. Already there are um, some people have left early because of different reasons. Um, I almost sense the shift in those who aren't here. Anyway, so it's the beginning of the end of something. But other things never change. What do they say in France? Uh, the more it changes, the more it's the same. Plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. So this is a talk about sila or ethics or virtue. And uh, although it's the second of the paramitas in the traditional lists, um, there's not a particular um, reason why it should seem like a like early uh, thing to know. It's a very basic paramita, but also beautiful for the end of this time when there have been questions about how to carry this into the world and we all, the teachers, felt that this talk about ethics and virtue is perfect for um, your reflection and consideration as you leave. So I am start with a uh, communique that I received from one of the uh, organizations that I give money to. It says, A happy Halloween for 3,000 hairy-legged spider babies when All Hallows' Eve dawns this Sunday. Thousands of baby fenraft spiders belonging to one of the United Kingdom's most endangered spider species should be contentedly dwelling in wild habitat after being released last week. Since spring, an ecologist with Britain's Natural England has been hand-rearing 3,000 spiderlings in her own kitchen. (laughs) Personally feeding flies to every one of her charges until all are set free in a nature preserve in Suffolk. Now it goes on to describe fenraft spiders, one of only two arachnids fully protected under British law, are named for their ability to float on water, thanks to very hairy legs. (laughs) In wetlands or swamps rapidly being destroyed and polluted by humans. They can grow to be five centimeters long and are known for their distinctive cream-colored stripes and elaborate bobbing mating dance. (laughs) Here's hoping that as many of these as possible make it to adulthood as they have much more to fear from us than we from them, Halloween or not. So, happy Halloween. Um. (laughs) Yeah. So the sense of, like, there's some volunteer in England feeding 3,000 baby spiders in her kitchen is kind of uh, sums up something I mean to say about uh, virtue or sila or ethics or walking your talk or taking this out onto the road, as you will all be doing tomorrow. I'm not sure how much advice you've been given yet because I was away the afternoon somewhat preparing the talk And I would like from all of the management to ask you to not do all your email at once, especially not while you're driving. That's an official request. (laughs) 
But another um, image of sila or virtue, I have one of the New Yorker cartoons that um, Philip has turned me on to looking for those. Um, and I found one that I thought had to do with sila, really. There is a dog and a cat uh, sitting together, and the dog is looking pretty happy. It's near its dish and kind of looking relaxed in a sort of doggy way. And the cat has one of those kind of cat faces on. <laughs> um, and the dog sa- is saying to the cat, why don't you go out and scratch a chair or something? <laughs> so um, the cat's true nature to scratch chairs uh, sometimes needs to be expressed regardless of our priorities. Um, humans, and soon all of you will go home and you can scratch your furniture or scratch other itches you may have been feeling (laughs) since you've been here. (laughs) I know bacon cheeseburgers loom large in in one person's mind. (laughs) I heard about it in the interview, and I just actually ate a hamburger myself today. Um, so here in the retreat, it's like you're like this friend of uh, my husband's and mine who um, kind of fibbed on a lease when she was in Washington, D.C. on a grant saying she had uh, no pets. And she had cats that did like to do this on the furniture, so she put little things on their paws. <laughs> so that's you guys. And w- sometimes when my husband and I want to laugh, we kind of say, remember the cats? And we go like, <laughs> Rosalind's cats. <laughs> And I know that not everyone is prevented from scratching their itches in retreat. Um, Numerous times I went to the store and I always saw someone from the retreat down there shopping. (laughs) Um, One night, Spring and Mark and I were kind of laughing, sharing uh, our antics on retreats at tea, and we um, will draw the curtain across that and leave it to your imagination. (laughs) Certain things that we did when we were young yogis and unripe in our practice and in the secrecy of our rooms perhaps we might have done things so we know that you guys are also (laughs) 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 but you've been a good group and mostly not too disruptive and supportive of one another and um, I mean to say also that a little mischief and creativity is uh, human nature so trick or treat too so it's very natural to want to um, carry what we've learned here and sustain it and grow, uh, have it grow, whether or not we're in these kind of privileged and special hothouse conditions of the retreat. And also to express our nature um, a little bit, as the cat was being encouraged to do by the dog. And I want to suggest that these are not two things, um, All the paramitas are considered to be expressions of our essential nature, sort of seeds that exist in us, and also things to be developed. We've talked about this quite a bit. So in this talk, the main way that I want to work on it is there's a train of thought that I've been trying to develop clearly, and at some point in the talk, I'm going to enter into that, and it's still under development, so it might... um, I hope not to lose anyone. But the main things I want to persuade you of is first that uh, virtue or ethics are an innate quality of everyone's, that they belong to humans and actually to many animals, uh, just as the cat's nature is to scratch. Uh, So you are uh, prone to expressing virtue. 
Actually, it's more that just as a cat takes care of its kittens, just out of its nature, that human beings have certain ways that we express goodness and virtue um, all day long, really. We're actually always trying to solve our problems, always trying to bring happiness to ourselves uh, in either skillful or less skillful ways. Great sneeze back there. That was really <laughs> The other thing I want to express or try to uh, persuade you of in the beginning part of the talk is that uh, ethical virtue is based on compassion, is based on empathy. Uh, and that as a innate quality of ours that you will also want to be curious about it to listen to your inner nature carefully as a way of developing your virtue um, dig deep develop a long attention span as you know years long as you work away on certain issues and problems be ready to be surprised and recognize that virtue actually leads to happiness that as you develop higher and higher levels of virtue that um, there's a kind of bliss called the bliss of blamelessness that starts to pervade your life more and more and it's kind of dignity or self-esteem um, or truly uplifting the mind so that it can reach uh, wisdom and express its wisdom and compassion. But we always um, want to be kind of exploratory or curious uh, about virtue. Like I think we inherit a notion of virtue or morality as being very perfectionistic, like that you meet certain standards or you don't, and then you've fallen down, and it's um, terrible. Um, I think in the Buddhist tradition, the essence of virtue or sila is that it's really not a commandment or not you know, something um, written in stone, but it's a practice. And part of what keeps it exploratory is that for me, some of the essence of sila is recognizing that we always have a choice. In every moment, there is choice. Sometimes we don't feel that it's there or we don't know that it's there. But the more we practice choice at this level, um, the more fluid it becomes and the more natural it becomes to continue choosing away from things that lead to suffering and toward things that lead to joy and connection and peace and love and all those good things that we actually really want it's like uh, this image that Spring gave in her talk last night to feed the white, uh, the sort of wolf of good qualities, the gorgeous, you know, prince or princess of wolves and the skanky, uh, mean, uh, gross wolf, let it starve, you know. <laughs> I mean, too bad. <laughs> Maybe you rehabilitate that one. I think that's a more like... <laughs> This talk has a lot of species uh, diversity in it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I want to use the word or look at the word virtue um, in its English term in a deeper way or its older uh, meaning in which it meant sort of a, used to mean a property of something like the virtue of rosemary is that it scents the soup or something like that. Or when they would be, dis when herbal, old herbalists would describe herbs, it would be the virtues of this plant are such and such. You know, it can, you can be used to dye your clothes or something like that. It's something that's like inherent in the nature of something. It means that it is a virtue. So even contemplating that definition, I think for me helps internalize a little bit the sense of virtue. And the other, th um, 
meaning of virtue is kind of like a power or a function uh, by means of which certain things happen or certain things are changed. By virtue of her many friends, she may avoid prosecution for her uh, misdeeds, something like that, right? By virtue of something, then something else happens. So sila, or virtue, which we all have, has, is both inherent in us and has kind of a, a way of working in our lives. Um, so to start, um, about sort of what's the innateness of this parami is... Um, when you think about animals, that even tigers take care of their children, that the great apes show a lot of empathy and compassion for one another. Uh, the Dalai Lama is very fond of saying that uh, mammals, anything that's a mammal, has been cared for by a mother and therefore knows at least some degree of being cared for and knows that it's been dependent at some time. So there's kind of a little bit of understanding in the mind of anything that's a mammal. And it may be that those little hairy-legged spiders, um, even in their mating dance, who knows if they don't feel something like what we feel when we see someone attractive of, uh, to us who kind of turns on our, our lights. What kind of totality do they see in the male striped hairy spider's uh, configuration or female? Studies have been done on infants, and they've shown that uh, infants as young as three months old, whom the researcher described as basically in all other respects being like a meatloaf, he said. (laughs) 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 Unflatteringly. I think he was trying to make a point. Um, They show them little cartoons where there's like a triangle that's really mean to a square, you know, and like the square's trying to go up the hill and a triangle either pushes it up and helps it or pushes it down and hurts it. And these little three-month-old babies show a preference to start looking at the good guy rather than the bad guy. They already know um, that they already respond more. And they've even kind of linked to a kind of empathy or compassion the fact that probably all of us know about this syndrome, that when one baby cries, they all start crying. You know, like if there's a bunch of babies in a kindergarten or a room... They just start to resonate with each other, and everybody's upset all of a sudden. Um, Like the story that was told about Sylvia Burstein and all her kids going wild at once. This is actually our innate compassion. And it's at the root of our practice. It's actually not like science has discovered one kind of compassion, and then you have your compassion, and then there's the sense of the innate parami, it's all sort of talking about the same thing. It's talking about us and how we actually are. There was, there's a person who works for the Dalai Lama as a translator now who's very intelligent. And when he was younger, he uh, was getting very good grades in his school. And he was thinking of going into physics or chemistry. And he was sitting with another wise uh, monastic person. And that person... Uh, just tricked him. He, he stuck his finger into a, into a candle flame. And the, that, you know, the guy was trying to make a decision. And guy, the other one stuck his finger into a cam, candle flame. And this translator went like that. And he said, see, bodhicitta, you have it. And on that, he decided to uh, develop his mind further and to take the Buddhist path of actually developing that innate quality is really sort of seeing that the teachings and who we are are really 
um, at one. So this innate quality of compassion um, and the ethics that arise out of it, both the natural ethics and a little bit maybe the constructed or practiced ethics that we are um, trying to um, get you to engage with here, um, they all have their basis in compassion and empathy. So the Buddha said, this is the, uh, the first precept, the way that it was expressed in the suttas. All beings tremble at violence. All fear death. Life is dear to all. Putting yourself in others' place, one should not kill or cause others to kill. So why not to kill is recognizing that whoever we're intervening with is really just the same as us. It's not being unseparate. But these ethicists or scientific thinkers all also have agreed, they um, recently in a sort of intellectual journal I subscribe to also, they put out a 10-point agreement on natural ethics. And they said um, ethics are, is innate to some degree, but we also don't always live up to our highest understanding or our highest knowledge. You know, if we just look around or we look at our own life, we can see that you know, we might all sometimes know better or think we know better than we actually behave. And not to romanticize babies too much. Um, Babies are kind of parochial, you know, like if they're raised with a certain kind of person or a certain color of skin, then they start to feel, or can learn, I should say, to feel uncomfortable based on what they're, they're familiar with and unfamiliar with when they start to be anxious about strangers And then it gets reinforced by verbal teachings and transmissions from their parents and society. Pretty soon you can end up with an enculturated person who um, isn't so compassionate or sees certain people or as worthy and others not. And also only about 50% of babies uh, will give like a can... If it doesn't cost them anything, they get their own candy and they can also choose to give a candy to someone else. About 50% don't even care. They just take the one for themselves and they don't add the other one, uh, even though they could. It's not like it doesn't become an either-or. They just kind of don't think beyond their own little box. I had my f- a friend named Bill Webb who used to talk about... Uh, he was very Christian, and he would talk about original sin seen in the rage of an infant. He said, like, when an infant is angry, don't give it a nuclear bomb. <laughs> it would tear the universe apart. <laughs> Or if the rage of an infant were equivalent to a bomb, it would, you know, it, we think of it as an innocent rage, but it's actually rage also itself. So the Buddha was very realistic about this, and he acknowledged the existence of things and forces that interrupt and obstruct the natural compassion that we all have deeper down. Always concerned with suffering. In the sutta called A Handful of Leaves, he talks about, uh, he says, how many are the things that I know through direct knowledge? He said, there are as many as the leaves in this forest, or we can imagine around here, as many as the leaves on this hill. He said, but all the things that I've told you are just a few. And he says, why don't I tell you all of the things that I know? He says, because they bring no benefit, they do not lead to liberation from suffering. What have I taught? This is suffering, and this is the origin of suffering, 
This is the cause. This is the cessation of suffering. So let your task be this. This is suffering. This is the origin. This is the cessation. And this is the path to that cessation. So it's always, always relevant um, to kindness, to compassion, compassion for ourselves, compassion for others, compassion for our world. So the realization of wisdom also, as Spring said last night, uh, it's not something abstract. It's actually freeing ourselves from suffering to whatever greater or lesser degree. So we've all been here working for these 10 days and in the inter-meetings, in the meetings, we hear how people come to be freed in smaller or lesser or bigger ways. Some people come out from under a kind of a big bad story. Some of you allow yourselves to feel greater joy or are able to be sad and cry. Some release tension in the body, no longer afraid of certain mental states. And when the fear dissolves, then there's room for more joy or balance or equanimity. Um, So many beautiful reports from you guys. Like We feel like we really have taken a journey together and that uh, reduction of suffering and reduction of internal and external harm is kind of, that's the trajectory that we're all interested in. Someone uh, learned to enjoy and appreciate even having a psyche. I thought that was great. (laughs) So inherent in this practice, it comes really out of the Buddha's realization and we repeat it in our own uh, following of the instructions that he left behind. His own personal quest um, was disenchantment with outer degrees or outer levels of things that are supposed to make us happy as Spring was talking last night. And I also feel that an an aspect of his journey must certainly have been, and um, I haven't heard this too often, I read it in one biography of the Buddha years ago, that as a very sensitive um, and intelligent person, he was uh, destined to sort of grow up and take on the throne of the uh, princely region where he was, the sort of tribe described variously as like super opulent and sort of medium, medium strength. Uh, ethnic group that he felt really responsible for everyone to take care of them as a king or a prince should do and in the story of how he leaves the palace four times that many of you may have heard that he was very protected in this lavish life um, that his father didn't really want him to be exposed to suffering you can read this as sort of mythological too and something about you know the rulership of our own minds how we don't really want to see suffering. We don't really want to suffer, etc. And how easy it is to turn away. But that when he would leave his palace, he would see poverty and illness and death and old age. And in being a sensitive and compassionate person, he was tortured by the limitations of his capacity to help. And as a solution, he sort of appointed himself to find a way out of all these problems. So that's why he left his home also, is trying to help everyone uh, find a solution, including his own internal understanding that um, all the dancing girls in the world weren't going to sort of ultimately do it for him. 
And some of the evidence, I think, for this is that uh, when he returned and his son was sent out by uh, the Buddha's relatives and said, Dad, you know, like, you're supposed to give me my inheritance now. That's what my uncles are saying. The Buddha said, um, I'll teach you what I know. This is what I really want to pass on. Um, it may not be what you think you want at first. And indeed, his son had some issues at first in the monastic order. But later on, there's a record of a sutta that he personally gave to his son, a discourse where it was a teaching on examining your actions and on seeing with what quality of mind did his son engage in his life. Before he was about to do something, how did it feel? What was the quality of his motivation? What, what was he really kind of after? What was he up to? During the action, how did it feel? And afterwards, contemplating the results, how did it work out and how do you feel about it now? Um, something really valuable for each of us and also the inheritance of sila um, that each of us can receive. So sometimes we might do something with great enthusiasm and think that it's like this great thing to do, but uh, then you wake up the next day and you're like, uh-oh, you know, <laughs> I wish I hadn't done that. You know, and so then do we summon up what's necessary to not do it again? You know, you teach yourself how to do that. So I want to talk a little bit about how the necessity of sort of appointing oneself the way the Buddha did and how in that sense the Buddha mind is still teaching and active just in ordinary life to reassure us all about the nature of ordinary life. A few weeks ago I was on the subway in New York and I was listening to a talk on metta through my headphones um, on the subway and this sort of old, skinny, white man got on with a little briefcase, a little plastic briefcase. He was, he didn't seem to be in bad shape, but he wasn't in great shape either. So I was, sort of saw him without really seeing him. And then I noticed that this young uh, mother with two boys, uh, she looked like she could have been from some sort of East Asian area. She got up and wanted to give him her seat, even though she had two kids. And he said, no, no, and she insisted and insisted, and then he gratefully kind of sank into her seat. And I felt like a little bit ashamed. I was like, here I am listening to this talk on loving kindness. (laughs) 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 And everyone saw this guy get on, you know, and there were no seats, and he was older than anyone else, and she's the one who decides to get up. What's the difference between what happened in her, you know? She's self-selected, And I thought she related to him, like she saw him, she was looking, she was in relationship with him. Um, And maybe it was her practice, maybe it was some religious thing of hers. But the relatedness persisted actually, like uh, I went on various other trains and by happenstance I saw him two trains later. There were all those things that happened in New York where they closed down certain branches on a Sunday and you have to do all kinds of stuff. And when I saw him again, I felt like saying hi. I actually said hi to him and sat next to him because it was like now I had a relationship with him too. It was nice. You know, we were friends. And if it hadn't happened, (laughs) you know. (laughs) And then I went and told this story at the New York Insight place and they said, oh yeah, we see so many beautiful things on the subway. Just the natural compassion of people with each other, the immediacy of that. 
So what is it then that stands in our way of kind of choosing ourselves? And there's a lot. There could be separation or selfishness, noisy mind, just not seeing, you know, we're listening to our own inner, where we're the star of our own show and everyone else kind of fades down to insignificance um, in comparison. And what we don't see very often is when we're cut off in this way that there's a greater or lesser degree of suffering in this kind of self-centeredness, sense of separation. And here I think we've been trying to, you know, lead you into feeling that that's not a true story, the story of our separation from one another, from the world, from nature, that we're actually more of an expression of nature than anything else. We're all, you can't get out of it even though you think so. Tubton Chudrin says, people harm others only when they're unhappy. No one wakes up in the mornings and says, I feel so great today, I think I'm just going to go out and harm some people. <laughs> so many of us uh, practitioners in all the traditions in some way or other find a way to remind ourselves of our vow each day that our practice will be This is what I live for, you know, to offer love and protection, to bring down the suffering in myself and in others. We're figuring out our skill here, how to kind of log out of all those bad porno dungeons full of viruses of the mind, (laughs) and log on to our new mentality. I thought of that this afternoon. Yeah. (laughs) Now that you're going to go out there. There are a lot of computer metaphors, you know, like when your thoughts are the pop-up window, you know, and how many times do you have to... They figure out that the little X dot to turn it off is really disguised, and sometimes they want you to click on something that isn't. You think you're going to turn it off, and it leads to, like, a bunch more and stuff. Anyway. um, (laughs) Or how you get those, like, rootkit viruses, and you have to go in for, like, I don't know what they call that, rebuilding or whatever. Anyway, so now we're going into life and this is like the real practice or the real expression. It's not only just sitting on the cushion. So one story I have that has become like an actual expression of sila or virtue, the kind of virtue about letting things become beautiful in my life is in our driveway. We have, um, that's sort of cement and there's some, it's an asphalt driveway and there's some cement back steps and a garden in the back. And somehow a little tiny seed from a flower plant called Cosmos, some of you may know of it, um, it kind of looks like a daisy and it has very feathery uh, fennel-like leaves. One tiny seed from one of these kind of lodged in a crack in the, right at the corner of the cement steps in the asphalt, kind of unbelievably. So in March, it was about this big. We thought, wow, you know, here's this flower growing in the middle of the asphalt. And we kind of stepped around it. We've had lots of house guests bringing their suitcases in and out, and somehow everybody managed not to smash it. And by the time I left uh, Boston, it had had 24 flowers on it. I counted them, and it was about like this. It wasn't like a huge one, like it didn't really have good dirt or anything, but it managed to flower and it went to seed, and then all those seeds are going to be going somewhere. Who knows where they're going to be going? Um, my 
Tibetan teacher was briefly a house guest and I showed him this thing. I was so happy with it. It just brought so much happiness to us to see it all the time. And as it went through its budding and flowering and he, and he looked at it and, and he said, oh yeah, mindfulness. Like you stayed away from smashing it. That was mindfulness. <laughs> but really, I mean, it's not like that's another kind of mindfulness. That is mindfulness. It's possible, you know, to stay out of the way and let things flower in their time, like surprising things that start kind of seemingly on their own. I see in the back uh, Marianne, who takes care of the shop at Spirit Rock, which runs totally on the honor system. And it actually works, you know? They have, so I was, not to put ideas in your minds, but um, somebody asked her at lunch about um, whether there was a significant problem with just things disappearing, and she said, no, it seems to work, actually. There's not, it doesn't. Um, so a life worth living, a virtuous life, the bringing of so much inner dignity and joy through the way that we interact with the world. So many stories like of the Chilean miners who were underground for 70 days and how they represent for us, like in the way that they held themselves together and the way that they must have been kind of really meditating down there, like dealing with all the fear that they had and kind of their camaraderie. And um, I think it may have been Jack who talked about how if there's one person who sort of can sort of keep it together, then everyone can. And there was a lot of uh, understanding about how their leader, uh, by keeping his cool, was able to keep them from freaking out down there. And how they received, in a sense, the world's attention and care and how we were all made noble by the ordinary people, those people with not much money and really dangerous jobs, uh, keeping it together down there. And then they invented stuff for them, like the special capsule to bring them out. And uh, they figured out, how, everyone was figuring out how to help them and watching what they asked for. Um, the country of Bolivia actually likes Chile more now because there were some Bolivians down there and they've had a historical rivalry. Actually, Chile's been very mean to Bolivia in the past. So who knows, it might herald a new era in international relationships and also laws in minds. So why is it that there's not a universal better world when this, we see this kind of beautiful possibility? Jack was saying to me that if even, imagine if even one of the five precepts were observed worldwide, like if there were no murder, if everyone agreed not to just murder even the people, um, or there were no stealing or no lying, um, no sex trafficking or no you know, exploitation of one human being by another, um, all the pain that that causes, or if everyone were to abstain from intoxicants all of a sudden, um, family abuse, car accidents, house fires, all, uh, many of those things are mostly related to alcohol. So how does our innate goodness go so wrong? There's a story of a, sort of a parable of a rich merchant who's dying, and he's trying to figure out, as in all such stories, where to give his inheritance and the magician trickster figure says, how about if you, um, in your ordinary store dealings, give someone way too much change and the person who gives you back um, 
your change is, should be the person that you trust with all of your stuff afterwards, the person who's really honest. But the magician trickster person did something, uh, put on a spell on this money, so that as soon as the person got it, they saw it as the thing that they most desired. So most of them kept it until the guys in the story... So one person saw, I don't know, like love or the perfect partner or a house or a car or whatever it was um, until the youngest son came who had been concerned about his older father's failing health. And when he got the so-called magic extra money, it turned into a medicine to help his dad because that was the thing that he wanted the most. So he gave the money back and the guy said, well, I guess it's you. Um, I'll pass my kingdom to. So selfishness, right? Something like that. Or all of the things that, all the mental poisons that have been described. So I was going to have people raise our hands if we ever have had problems with any of the precepts, like I was going to list them in order. If we've ever come to an edge with killing another being... Um, or if we've ever uh, even harmed someone else, knowingly done so, or unknowingly done so, including ourselves. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm also saying that you can abstain from... Re- I'm just keeping my hand in the air. <laughs> not stealing and not cheating, ever, right? Or not sort of finding a time when you think no one's looking and you still might even do it unskillful use of your words. (laughs) Yeah, bringing, you know, bringing down the whole environment by the way that we speak. Um, Anyone caused any problems for yourself or someone else in your love life, ever? (laughs) Um, Or intoxicants. Anyone ever have some issues in that realm, now or in the past? Ajahn Mahabhuwa said, um, greed... So that's why they're precepts, actually, because everybody's got something to learn. I mean, if you really try to practice them, you'll learn something. Um, You may learn that they're not to be applied rigidly or perfectionistically, that sometimes situations are very complicated. And you might, you know, there's that test that they do of ethics, like, would you steal medicine to help a sick child? Would you break into the pharmacy to help your child? I mean... You know, there are times when you just can't, and we're always kind of taking chances and risks. Even driving, um, we might, we know that we might hurt someone else or we might die every time we get in the car. We kind of hide from that, but it's true. So there's, it, there's almost no way of living 100% this way. It's in the nature of life, and that's one thing I like about Buddhism is that they, that's why it's a practice. When you find yourself outside sort of the precepts in some way or other, either because of your own internal struggles or because of a situation that makes it impossible or something like that. You recognize the harm that's happened and you start again, that's all. I mean, you feel it and you deal with it and then you keep going. Uh, Hopefully the next time you'll have another chance. Ajahn Mahabhuwa said, uh, greed, anger, delusion, laziness, discontent, jealousy, possessiveness. All these things are excrement piled on the heart. (laughs) 
he, um, so I want to show a picture of the results of some of this. If you guys can see this, it's a seagull covered with oil from the oil spill. It's a super painful picture. Some of you may have seen them. But it looks actually as if it's covered in excrement. It looks really sad. Um, it's so painful to see that this is kind of a world in which regulations are, exist to be overridden um, you know, because of greed or because a mentality of getting away with stuff has settled in. Um, it's so much in the way the mindset starts to work that we don't protect the world, we don't protect ourselves, and we don't protect one another. And it's not about getting something just for ourselves in this practice at all. In the Saleka Sutta, which is, uh, means the sutta on erasing suffering, I guess would be the best translation. Someone asked the Buddha about what's the nature of liberation, and he says, he gives, there's a huge list of stuff, but he goes, it may be that with transcending perceptions of the body, with the disappearance of all perceptions of sense response, thinking space is infinite, a monk enters upon and blissfully abides in the perception of infinite space. So no longer even confined to a body or to time or anything, just resting in total space. Then he might think, I've erased and gotten rid of all my bad habits and suffering. Then the Buddha says, but in, in our discipline, this is not called erasing at all. It's just called peaceful abiding. He goes on to say that um, these what we need to do is, here's how you practice erasing your bad habits. Others will be harmful. We will not be harmful here. This is how the erasing will be done. Others will kill living beings. We shall not kill living beings here. This is how the erasing shall be done. Others may take what isn't given, etc. He goes through a list of 43 different things. Others will be hostile. Others will denigrate. Others will refuse to take advice or criticism. Others will not bother to learn anything. Others will hold their views tenaciously, be arrogant and fraudulent and hypocritical. And we shall not do that here, he says. And we also have 43 positive practices by which to erase our suffering and our problems, our bad habits. So as he went through the whole list again, saying a person given to false speech has truthful speech by which to avoid falsehood, etc. So it's not only enjoining us to avoid doing kind of bad stuff, it's saying like what to do is actually do positive stuff. Not just avoid killing, but support and sustain life. But again, we run up against, in a certain sense, our minds and our desires and our selfishness and our separation and difficult uh, patterns laid down in childhood or traumas or you know wrong beliefs or all those things so we've now I'm getting into the how it works do you guys feel sort of convinced that virtue is inherent by now I've spent a long time hammering it in <laughs> now we have 15 minutes to cover everything else I've been going sl much slower I was told to talk slower so <laughs> I might just have to stop before I get to the end at this point so how do we work it out that we abstain from doing these things? And this is my handy-dandy system here that I'm very happy with and proud of. So 
you say you're not going to do that outer thing. Like, I'm going to walk by the note board this time and I'm not going to look and see if there's something there for me or... <laughs> right? Um, or in regular life, I'm not going to send an email just because I haven't gotten any emails from anyone and, and only spam today, so I want to get an email. <laughs> but then it means I spend more time on email, etc. Whatever those things are, you know, you choose your places of restraint to make your life simpler or non-killing or something like that. Anything. Like, I'm going to try to speak well of people for a change, for even for a day, not say anything bad about someone. And then somebody starts talking about that particular person who you really enjoy or feel like it's dangerous for the world not to know how wicked that person is <laughs> or whatever. And you feel like doing it all of a sudden, right? You feel like you really want to. Like, I really want to do that. Like, in the morning, who is it? Uh, Tarania, the uh, teacher who teaches often at the BCBS, talked about how when she was quitting smoking, she'd say, I'm not going to light this, I'm not going to light this, I'm not going to light this, I'm not going to... You know, and it took her a few years to get through that. You start to feel the power of the desire, the craving that uh, makes you do things. Makes you do stuff that actually is against this kind of beautiful life that we've been describing. So the first thing is just abstaining. That's the outer. You take away the outer acting out, as you might call it in therapy. And then you're left with, um, you know, the lunatic in the phone booth or the, somebody described their mind as being like a bunch of monkeys in a stadium, you know, like something really intense because you haven't been able to tolerate it before. That's why you did the thing because you really wanted to and you wanted to so much that the wanting made you do it, right? That's obvious. But what happens when you start to say, I want to change, is that you feel like your wanting is kind of unbearable at first or your anger, or your jealousy, or your fear, or whatever it is, the, the feeling is terrible. Someone was talking about taking a walk in the woods and just going a little bit farther and a little bit farther until the fear was strong and you turned around. That's happened to all of us with different ways and different times. Like, you get stopped by the internal feeling, your internal reaction. So the second part of sila, the internal part of sila, or virtue that we've been describing here, also in the truth-telling uh, talk, which I know better than any of the other talks because I gave it myself, you let yourself feel it. You let yourself know that this is how I'm feeling. This is what's going on. You stay with it. And this is kind of the Buddha's great discovery, I feel, that you let yourself feel it and you try to remain unshaken, like just sitting through the sittings uh, many times, especially in the beginning of the retreat. We need all of us here to keep from you know, getting up and fiddling around or, you know, tweaking the microphones or fixing the flower arrangements or writing things down or just leaving the room and going for a walk. It's, it's very hard to sit through the desire to move here. And actually, um, that kind of renunciation of just being with your own nerve endings, very hard, say, if you're just, uh, just stop drinking or stop taking drugs. It's all of a sudden this terrible internal chaos is there that you used to medicate it can feel like you know it's built up for years and you know early sobriety is really a challenge for people who can't be with their sense of inadequacy or fears you know even fears about their boss or whatever it is all the stuff that we're all afraid of um, it's unbearable so but by sitting in it taking our royal seat here on the cushion 
Um, it's as if we've committed to being in a different relationship with our internal process. I had a friend who, uh, on the three-month course at IMS, suddenly would find herself behind the door in the small dining room eating tahini out of the jar, eating sesame stuff out of the jar. She found it so humiliating and painful, and it just ricocheted through her mind for the whole retreat. Um, this was when Deepama was teaching us at Barry, And Deepama said, well, when you find yourself back there, just say, I am doing it, I am doing it. So gentle, no judgment. That's what we're trying to get to. It's like, first there was the behavior, and then there was the punishment and the onslaught of the mind afterwards. Like, oh no, reactivity. Even when we feel that the point of the practice is to be on the breath, I've been so distracted, you know, clobber, clobber, clobber. You know, the mind is just so harsh with itself really inside. Some of the other strategies that we use to try to, other than just saying, I'm doing it, I'm doing it, um, you can name it as the top ten tunes. It's a very old um, instruction from the early days of Joseph, Jack, and Sharon teaching. You imagine yourself like a child. You know, you really find compassion for the person who feels this way or the person who acts this way. And this is a new relationship that we're having here, not just being controlled by our mental states. No judgment, no rejection, just by the practice, this kind of inner light of virtue starts to begin to shine and unfold. And you see that you can kind of forgive yourself maybe for just wanting to relieve the pressure, like just wanting to have like just a, one glass of wine, please. You know, I, I really had a bad day. You get a little closer to dealing with a bad day on its own merits, uh, that it's not so bad. So this ethics of attention that we're practicing of coming back to being with ourselves moment by moment starts to give us some openness internally, some forgiveness and more choices. We see the suffering kind of right up from close and then the reactivity that compounds it uh, is reduced. Over the long term, we can start to be able to really trust that we can make it through certain things. Maybe we were... Uh, sort of overcame a little bit of something and then the next time something else comes up it might not be the same fear but we remember that we made it through the anger or made it through the greed and it's kind of the same shape the same kind of internal discomfort that starts to almost become a signal to our awareness oh I have to get strong here or sometimes we know that something is too much for us we need help we're I mean we're not doing this alone so when you go home, also, there might be things you don't want to do necessarily alone or feel like now you have to tough it out in your cushion in your room. You might want to find a group to sit with or a therapist or something like that, some body work. So the Buddha said, um, all these mental formations and things that move through us, are there just traces of habit? He compared it to where a chariot has rolled across a dusty plain many, many times and it forms sort of a rut, you know, and then the chariot tends to go in the same place again, the same route, and it just makes a track like a road. He was sort of a guy, he often would use metaphors of conveyances and cars. <laughs> and if you take a new track, eventually the old track gets effaced by rain and by time or by just mere disuse. I was taken to see a piece of the Oregon Trail one time, and it was ruts, it was about this deep. 
but it no longer connected anything to anything. It was kind of like the special thing that was remaining in this in a field where it, these, you know, what do you call those covered wagons had crossed. But now there are new roads across the country or from here to there. And no longer is that one used. So that's also the nature of our mind or our brain. Like we learn to take different ways around certain things. And then the world starts to look different. We see different scenery. The Buddha said at the end of the Saleka Sutta, after he explained all these things, like we have this, you know, if you um, don't want to be killing people, you have non-killing. And then he goes through uh, all that list and he says, so thus I have shown you the instruction What can be done for students by a master who seeks their welfare has been done. Here are the roots of trees. Meditate, Kunda. Do not delay. So had he been able to remove all of our issues and problems, he would have done it, of course. I mean, as I said in our other talk, we would all do it immediately, of course. And that's actually that short-term thing as part of how our mind works. Let's get rid of my problem right now. Uh, But it doesn't really work that way. It's slower. So within the nature of our life, if we want more freedom, this kind of practice is really necessary. We um, plop our testicles or our lotus flowers down upon these cushions as like the Hawaiian navigators (laughs) and start to study the currents and the stars and our mind and its ways. (laughs) We start to enact compassionate awareness moment by moment knowing in and through the body in the present moment. So Achan Bua, Mahabua, the teacher of Achan Man, whom Spring read from last night, said, to be a disciple of the Buddha, you should try to revive the mindfulness and discernment lying dormant in your heart. Once mindfulness has been trained, as we have mentioned, it will become stronger day by day, more accustomed to working the same way we get accustomed to other forms of work. When we bring them to bear, they will be able to understand the affairs of the heart in due time, not taking long. So this awareness with no reactivity, not adding more fuel to the suffering inside, we begin to see more and more that like the stuff in us is just patterns. Like we are not like an alcoholic. We're just someone with some pretty strong habits. Um, Even people who have murdered or lived a life of crime can be rehabilitated. I read a book recently by a very famous British criminal who robbed a ton of banks and killed a bunch of people. And it took him many painful years to kind of exhume all the layers in his psyche. And he got down to shame, just shame at the way he'd grown up in a housing project. And he was remembering like this little yellow jacket that his mom got at a, at a resale shop. And he thought it was the coolest thing until someone at school said, oh, that used to be my, be my jacket, and we threw it out, and he could never wear it again. And it was so like painful for this kid, and it was one of his core kind of things that he was acting out of. Acting, He never wanted to be able to feel that again, N- never wanted to have to feel that again. So if we've asked some questions about what is the meaning of non-self, um, it's really that. It's like those things are not necessarily defining us those patterns might be there, but they're not necessarily us. So now I'm coming towards the ending of the talk in the final section. We've now gotten through sort of the ethics of 
innate, the innateness of virtue, the apply, you know, the outer natural virtue, then starting to apply this attention internally so that we start to diffuse some of the reactivity and we are with things kind of on their own bare merits with awareness and compassion, just watching them come and go and seeing that they're happening in the mind and maybe not necessary to act out. We have more choice there. The mind is less acting out against itself. So we start to feel a kind of inner determination or activism or like a broadening of the practice where we can start to bring all of our life onto the path. Um, just as I will no longer kill worms, I will no longer practice the internal, uh, internalization of self-hate or false values. I will no longer let situations become a venue for my hatred or my greed to be projected into the world. I can practice on these things in myself. I can choose a different uh, way across this dusty plain. I would just had dinner with a friend before um, this talk, and she was talking about this incredible like shenanigan that took place around her apartment, whether she was going to have to move out or not, like stuff that was kind of out of her control. And she said, with real conviction, she said, this was really great for my practice of letting go. <laughs> No, and she meant it. It wasn't like fake. It was real. It was like she found more strength by bringing that onto her path. Chogyang Trungpa said, there's no pollution caused by your practice. If you work on yourself, it's a lot better than trying to change other people. We're talking also on this level. I'm not saying that we don't need to try to change the world, but on this internal level, it's much better than trying to change other people you begin to develop a certain technique of realization within yourself so you don't actually pollute the rest of the psychological world that exists around you. If you use the whole rest of the world as the source for your own development, other people will give you lots to work with. <laughs> so I have a friend, Fred, uh, in Albuquerque, Fred Herman, who for a time was taking care of both of his wife's parents, including his father, who was sort of a, a little bit of a demented nurse pincher in a, living in a place. Uh, <laughs> and he was having to do six loads of diapers for this guy every day, and the guy was really nasty. And then the, you know, his mother-in-law was also really disabled, and he was taking care of her too. He had a son who also had some kinds of issues. And bringing all of this onto his path, he was pretty, so amazing. Um, our relationship began when I offered him a uh, Boston Red Sox hat to wear because he was a Yankee fan. And he accepted to wear it. He said, like, this is a really big deal for me to wear this hat. And um, this is a really big deal for me to do all this work in my life. And as he worked on it and polished his presence of just doing what needed to be done in his life, he recently sent me an email saying, like, it started off that he did it with a kind of desperation or resentment. As we all know, I think Tija and I were talking about this, like, everyone has, like, a structural imbalance in our life somewhere or other, um, large or small. And you start off working at it with the idea that, like, do a huge amount thinking that it's going to go back into shape the way you wanted it to go. You know, it'll meet your expectations of how it should be or how it needs to be or how you really want it to be. 
your problem will go away. Well, often things in life really don't go away just because we want them to or just because we do a lot. So that initial energy kind of enthusiasm and desperation kind of gives way to manipulative, a long time of manipulation of like, well, I'm just going to do this and I still think it'll go away. Maybe less, but I, I have to do it. I don't really like it. Maybe it's not going to go away, but I hate it and stuff like that. And then toward the end, it's like if you keep polishing internally in this way, it's just, as Fred said, you do what you do and see you later. You know, you just do it because it's there to be done, because it's right, because it needs to be done, because it needs to be faced. And if the outcome doesn't change, in fact, by the time the situation, you're taking it onto the path, has gentled you, you kind of appreciate it or you can at least let go more completely. You send metta to the person who won't talk to you anymore. Um, or you see that a lot of your initial agenda was actually your own kind of problem projected, your own perfectionism or desire that someone else should be more like you than like themselves. You start to love them more for being themselves, even if, um, I don't. what am I going to do about the distribution of this? talk. I think I might keep it in the retreat. Even if, like my husband, you never clean your hair out of the sink drain. <laughs> now, to me, it is only hair. It is no longer the oppression of women since the beginning of time. <laughs> I had to stare at it for a long time before that happened. <laughs> So a person could know South Korea for a long time without knowing Wanju, an obscure count. Oh, well, I'll have to skip this because we're getting... A person could know a lot about Wanju without ever hearing of Cha Sasun, a 69-year-old woman who lives alone in the mountain-ringed village of Sinchon. Now, however, she is an unlikely national celebrity. This diminutive woman, now known nationwide as Grandma Cha Sasun, has achieved a record that causes people here to shake their heads and smile. She failed her driver's test hundreds of times and never gave up. Finally, she got her license on her 960th try. <laughs> For three years, starting in April 2005, she took the test once a day, five days a week. <laughs> After that, her pace slowed to twice a week, more or less, but she never quit. Hers is a fame based not only on sheer doggedness, but also on the universal human sympathy for a monumental, and in her case, cheerful loser. It felt like a huge burden falling off our back when she finally passed, <laughs> said an instructor at the John Book Driving School, which she once attended. Of course, she and this, her driving teacher noted that she should content herself with simply getting the license and not endangering others on the road by actually driving... <laughs> <laughs> but they were not so worried about the risk, they said, because it was the written test, not the driving skill and road test that she failed so many times. <laughs> so for an internal story about this, there's the Reber Rinpoche, who is a Tibetan teacher who I met briefly once. He had very extraordinary, bright, bright eyes. 20 years of relentless interrogation and torture um, in a Chinese prison. And what he started to do was, remember the quotation from uh, 
Tubton children about people being unhappy when they're harming someone else. He tuned into that in his guards and started to feel compassion for the pain of his guard who was torturing him. And maybe it wasn't very successful at the beginning, but um, over the course of 20 years, it is said that by the end, that when he heard the door at the end of the hall open and the boots coming down, he would completely enter a state of bliss just by hearing the sound of that person coming to hurt him. So that's kind of a story about the deepest opening. I think some of us may just wish for a little more resiliency or a little more um, spaciousness in our life. But those things are there, the profound wisdom and compassion that uh, allow us to be open to things that are like, I mean, we all have sort of outrageous experiences, I think, but maybe not as bad, some as bad as that, I think. Robinson Jeffers said, the sea's, the sea's voice worked itself into my mood. And I thought, this world is well made through no matter what happens. The sea's voice worked its way and worked itself into my mood. And I thought, this world is well made through no matter what happens. So somehow, deeply, we start to see the virtue of this world or of reality as our internal entanglements um, start to become more transparent. There's a lightness of heart or a sense of beauty or trust in the ground of things or in the nature of things that starts to arise. That the knowing and wise, compassionate, deepest nature of our mind is unchanged always in everyone, whether we're seeing it or not or whether they're seeing it or not. Things can seem to be covered up to an unbelievable degree. But this picture of the seagull that I showed you earlier was one that later on got washed by compassionate volunteers. And we hope that it survived, that it was one that did make it through. So the end part of the really ending part of the talk is living in a kind of openness um, of seeing things coming and going and that the three characteristics that Spring spoke of last night, they're true at all times, the impermanence of things, the unsatisfactoriness of things, and the non-self of things. I'd like to call those virtues because when the mind opens, it always opens along the line of appreciating one of those things, that things, hello, goodbye, or this terrible story isn't me, or that our dissatisfaction is caused by wanting something other than what we have, which is almost our permanent condition, even at a microscopic level. So that when we open to unsatisfactoriness, it actually is an insight of liberation, insight of liberation. It's not the beginning where you just say like, oh, wow, things are really challenging, and that's a relief to just let it go and let yourself know it. When you come to really accept it, you let go in a deeper way, and the mind can open to a deeper dimension. So from here, whatever you learned, uh, begin to live it and see if you can take it with you. Just let yourself express yourself naturally. Be playful. Um, Let your morality be exploratory and creative. Emerson said, don't be too tidy and um, squeamish in your actions. 
all of life is an experiment, and the more experiments, the better. So whether it's in erotic play uh, that brings you into connection or some different choice that you're making with your life, whether your choice of pleasures is um, celibacy still or community or finding connection with your garden or riding your bicycle more or feeding spiders or something like that, please express your innate goodness in every way that you can or refraining from things, temptation, studying a little longer before you kill the wasps in your yard and find out that they actually die every year and they don't come back in the the next year. Story, uh, I mean, I'll close with a poem called Mormon Missionaries Pay Me a Visit. I'm sitting on my lawn, enjoying a nice cigar, a nice blunt cigar, watching children ride scooters up and down the street, twilight gently falling, Swallows circling, Mississippi kites high overhead. Tree frog, sounds of sweet shadows. Then I see them in the corner of my eye. Two bikes slow. They cannot pass a lost soul. I'm too conspicuous. I don't want this feeling. I want them to pass me by. Good evening, sir, they say. I'm Elder Hansen, says the first. I'm Elder Olson, the second chokes. And then they wait. But all I can think to say, you're kind of young to be elders, aren't you? They launch into their sales pitch pitch about restoration and Heavenly Father. While I recoil and smoke, then interrupt. If I convert, do I have to give up my cigar? They're not sure. But soon get back on track, like a loose wheel wobbling until they finally bid me good evening. I watch them roll away and wonder, what gives them the audacity to interrupt me while I am at worship? So I say that and in hopes of also saying that I don't want to be re- religiously sectarian. It's just a talk about that is a reference to um, perfectionism or the need for um, sort of something other than natural virtue, I guess. It's more toward the sitting on your porch um, style of virtue than I want to dig another religion. So I'll leave it there. So, that's it. That's the talk. Thanks so much for your attention. Um, sit for a few minutes together and before you go to bed or stay up. Or Actually, yeah, that's right. There's a later sitting still. Might stay up till 11 tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.